Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Hello and welcome to EcoReport. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And now for your environmental headlines. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says residents of central and southern Indiana called for increased environmental oversight during community organization Hoosier Action's COVID-19 Vigil and Call to Action at the State House. Martinsville resident David Shell said authorities need to remedy toxic plumes at the city's Superfund site, which Shell believes are linked to the death of his niece from a rare form of cancer. And Mary Hess, a leader for Southwestern Indiana Citizens for Quality of Life, said legislators need to pay more attention to bills that protect citizens from environmental hazards rather than focusing on corporate rights. Hess has been active in campaigns against the proposed Riverview Energy coal-to-diesel plant that would be located in Dale, one mile from an elementary school and two nursing homes. Her group is helping to appeal the air permit issued to Riverview by the Indiana Department of Environmental Management. Quote, We the people will demand our representatives take up bills that protect our health, environment, and increase funding for IDEM. End quote. Hess said, quote, after all, that is their job, to protect us from harmful industries. Our quality of life depends on it, end quote. Hess says she is disappointed in the lack of hearings for environmental bills this season, considering that Indiana is now ranked first in the nation by the EPA's toxic release inventory for toxins released per square mile. Dozens of amendments to bills affecting Indiana environmental policy have sparked debate among lawmakers as the legislature enters its final stretch of the session, according to the Republic. The proposed changes arrive as members of the General Assembly decide whether the state should adopt greener initiatives or scale back current policy protecting water, energy, and other resources. One bill under consideration by the full House would create a state-sponsored carbon market in Indiana that allows companies looking to offset their carbon footprint to pay for greenhouse gas reduction efforts. While some companies already pay to reduce emissions in one place to make up for emissions they create elsewhere, Indiana lacks a formal market, meaning money paid for those offsets is often sent out of state or overseas. The voluntary program established by the Senate bill would bring the two sides of these transactions together, giving Hoosier farmers and forest owners an extra source of income for practices that capture and store carbon. Large corporations with operations in Indiana that have pledged to become carbon neutral include Amazon, FedEx, and Nestle. 
Although the plan has earned broad support, Democrats and environmental advocates are pushing back against an amendment approved by the House Natural Resources Committee last week that provides immunity to an Indiana company slated to begin the nation's largest carbon dioxide storage project in 2023. The plan is to inject CO2 underground. The amendment prevents Wabash Valley Resources, LLC, which operates a hydrogen production facility in Terre Haute, from being sued if carbon emissions it injects underground move to neighboring properties where they are not supposed to go. Landowners could not bring legal action against the company for perceived risks and would only be able to claim damages if they prove the company caused physical harm to them or their property, according to the amended bill. The Indiana Environmental Reporter says that more than 60 organizations, including local governments, environmental and conservation groups, and water management agencies, sent a letter to Indiana state legislators asking them to consider policy changes instead of supporting a bill seeking to remove all state protections for Indiana wetlands. The letter, signed by the cities of Angola, Bloomington, and Carmel, as well as the Merrifield Stormwater Utility, the Indiana Association of Soil and Water Conservation Districts, and many conservation and environmental groups, speaks out against Senate Bill 389, a bill that seeks a full repeal of the state's wetland protections and permitting authority for activities in wetlands. The bill's authors, all members of the Indiana Builders Association, have said the bill will help eliminate costs associated with land development. Opponents of the bill, including many of the organizations that signed the letter, have said the repeal of state wetland protection would cause a series of repercussions that could affect the state's wildlife and vegetation and cost taxpayers millions to take over functions done naturally by wetlands. The Brown County Democrat reports that citizen scientists were traveling throughout Brown County on Friday, April 2nd, with bottles, waders, and pH strips. Their job was to collect water samples from streams that flow into North Fork Salt Creek and Middle Fork Salt Creek, two of the main tributaries to Lake Monroe. Volunteers worked in teams of two to collect water samples from streams like Greasy Creek, Sweetwater Creek, East Fork Salt Creek, and Clay Lick Creek. Samples are being analyzed for E. coli, sediment, nitrogen, and phosphorus. Quote, We had a great time collecting samples last fall and are very curious to see how the spring samples compare, end quote, said Watershed Coordinator Maggie Sullivan. Quote, Last September, many of the streams were dry, but there was plenty of water this time. We are grateful to Brown County Inn, Story Inn, and Gatesville Country Store for hosting our Brown County volunteers, end quote. Other volunteers gathered in Freetown and Bloomington, and samples were collected from 125 sites in total. Friends of Lake Monroe, a nonprofit based in Bloomington, partnered with the IU Limnology Lab to organize the events. They will use the sampling results and other data to develop a watershed management plan for the lake that will be released in early 2022. Watershed management plans identify water quality problems, propose solutions, and create a strategy for putting those plans into action. Thanks to the Endangered Species Act, the California condor, the nation's largest bird, went from near extinction a century ago to flourishing in Pacific Northwest once again today. 
What pushed the birds almost to the brink were habitat loss, overhunting, and poisoning from hunting ammunition. At one time, condors inhabited the land between British Columbia and Mexico, but the threats to the species have caused such a drastic decline in their population that only 22 remained in the wild in the early 1980s. Biologists captured them and began a breeding program. It was such a success that condors were able to be reintroduced to southern and central California. Scientists now estimate that over 300 of the wild birds live in California and parts of Utah, Arizona, and Mexico. The Huroc tribe is reintroducing condors in northern California. The tribe has spent over 10 years planning for the bird's return, and its proposal for doing so was accepted by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in March. The tribe will start a captive breeding program within Redwood National Park, which once was home to condors. As early as this fall, captive-bred condors could be released into the park. The condor's return is critical to Huroc traditions and culture, bringing to Huroc ancestral territory and people a feeling of renewal. Condors are scavengers and play a significant role in cleaning up the environment by opening up carcasses with their large, strong beaks. Their actions permit other wildlife to access the carcasses and increase the recycling of nutrients in the land. The debate is raging over the meaning of organic in organic food. A California district judge has ruled that hydroponic fruits, vegetables, and other crops grown in containers with water rather than in soil can continue to be labeled and marketed with the federal government's USDA organic label, despite widespread complaints from organic consumers and farmers. The USDA organic label indicates that the U.S. Department of Agriculture has certified the food as organic. Sylvia Wu, a senior attorney with the Center for Food Safety, which filed a lawsuit along with numerous organic farms and organizations to stop hydroponic foods from being labeled as USDA organic, commented on the judge's legal decision, quote, Under the court's ruling, hydroponic producers can sell their crops as organic without building soil fertility. Yet organic farmers growing food and soil have to meet various soil building requirements to be certified organic, end quote. We went on to say, quote, this double standard violates the very purpose of the organic label and is contrary to the Federal Organic Act, end quote. The center urges consumers and farmers to pressure the Biden administration and USDA to stop the corporate agribusiness domination of national organic program standards. Those standards currently allow factory-farmed eggs, poultry, and dairy, as well as soilless hydroponics, to display the USDA organic label, unfairly penalizing the overwhelming majority of organic farmers and brands who uphold organic integrity. The infrastructure plan proposed by President Biden calls for tens of billions of dollars to address environmental and economic issues throughout the Ohio Valley region, according to details released recently by the White House. Speaking in Pittsburgh last week, Biden called his plan the largest jobs investment since World War II. Ohio Valley Resource says the the plan includes $16 billion to plug abandoned gas and oil wells and to reclaim hundreds of coal mines. 
The administration says the effort would create thousands of union jobs in communities hurt by the decline of fossil fuel production. Biden proposes a $40 billion program to retrain dislocated workers for jobs in growing sectors such as clean energy, manufacturing, and caregiving. The plan includes more than $100 billion in grants and loans to improve water, wastewater, and stormwater infrastructure and eliminate all lead pipes in service lines that supply drinking water. A $17 billion investment in ports and inland waterways would help improve infrastructure for commerce on the Ohio River and other navigable rivers in the region. The plan commits $50 billion to improving resilience to climate change, floods, and wildfires. The plan calls for a massive modernization of the nation's electric power grid and encourages clean energy generation and storage. It would establish 10 demonstration projects to capture and store carbon emissions from industries such as steel, chemicals, and cement. As with traditional infrastructure bills in past administrations, Biden invests heavily in roads, bridges, and transit systems. Republicans said the plan didn't spend enough on infrastructure and criticized the tax increases that would pay for it. The plan also didn't sit well with lawmakers from fossil fuel-producing states. The $2 trillion plan relies on an increase in the corporate tax rate and faces uncertain prospects in a closely divided Congress. Infrastructure is one issue that can typically obtain bipartisan support. Biden's plan also calls for eliminating billions of dollars in tax preferences for fossil fuel producers. The president has set a goal of achieving net zero carbon emissions by 2050. When Congress looked to prop up a tanking economy and staunch its hemorrhaging of employment as the pandemic spread last year, the oil industry was among those that sought relief. Now, a new report by Inside Climate News shows that dozens of fossil fuel companies received billions of dollars in tax benefits in the coronavirus relief package, but slashed tens of thousands of jobs anyway. While Congress ended up sending billions in direct loans to small and large businesses, a significant portion of CARES Act benefits came in the form of changes to the tax code. At least 77 fossil fuel companies took advantage of those to claim a total of $8.2 billion in benefits last year, even as they cut nearly 60,000 jobs. According to an analysis published Friday by Bailout Watch, a nonprofit supported by Rockefeller Philanthropy Advisors, Chris Kavika, a bailout watch analyst, said the data shows that the aid to the industry failed to deliver the benefits that Congress had intended. Quote, these companies did not use the money they received through the CARES Act to maintain payroll, end quote, he said. As oil prices collapsed last year, some energy companies began lobbying Congress and the federal government for various forms of relief. Occidental Petroleum, for example, enlisted its employees to send letters to members of Congress to ask that they provide liquidity to the energy industry, according to Bloomberg News. Among the various forms of stimulus included in the final relief package were changes to the tax code that proved beneficial to the oil industry. Marathon Petroleum, a major refiner, benefited the most, the analysis found, claiming $2.1 billion in tax benefits, according to the bailout watch analysis. 
The company cut nearly 2,000 jobs last year, not counting those in its retail business. Marathon spokesman Jamal T. Keary said some of the layoffs were associated with the idling of refineries and added that the company was generous with employees who lost their jobs. Quote, to help affected employees transition, we provided severance, bonus payments, extended health care benefits and employee rates, job placement assistance, counseling, and other provisions, end quote. NOV, a drilling company, cut nearly 8,000 workers, more than 20% of its employees, despite receiving a $591 million tax benefit. The company did not respond to a request for comment. Occidental collected $195 million and cut 2,600 jobs. Recently, a day ratio, winds blowing in a straight line with the force of a tornado, scored a direct hit on NextEra's Dwayne Arnold nuclear reactor in Palo, Iowa. The reactor has the same design as the Fukushima Daiichi reactor that melted down in Fukushima, Japan, 10 years ago after an earthquake and tsunami. Both plants are General Electric Mark I boiling water reactors. The derecho caused extensive damage to the mechanical draft cooling towers, as the plant's operator quickly acknowledged, and the damage served as an explanation for why the reactor would be closed permanently several months earlier than previously scheduled. Ed Lyman of the Union of Concerned Scientists recently revealed on the basis of Nuclear Regulatory Commission documentation that the reactor had experienced a 1% risk of a meltdown. That's a 10,000 times higher risk than the Commission's standard of one in a million. A nuclear catastrophe was narrowly averted. The story has a happy ending. NextEra is building a large solar voltaics array on the site of the decommissioned nuclear plant. The array will provide 690 megawatts of electricity and cost $700 million. If the catastrophe had occurred, the site would have been too contaminated with radiation for workers to install solar panels safely. Great Lakes algae is catching huge amounts of microplastics. Researchers found that one type of algae, which has greatly expanded its range within the Great Lakes and is one of the most abundant algae by weight there, could catch up to one trillion pieces of microplastic in the Great Lakes. Quote, it's just a massive amount of these microscopic particle pollutants that are now part of our environment, end quote, said Julie Peller, a professor of chemistry at Valparaiso University, whose recent research revealed the microplastics algae dynamic. There are a lot of microplastics in the Great Lakes, one of the world's largest freshwater ecosystems and the drinking water source for 30 million people. While less well understood than ocean plastics, the tiny bits of plastic are pretty much ubiquitous throughout the five lakes. Research shows they are in tap water and beer brewed with water from the Great Lakes. Surface water samples show huge numbers of microplastics, but statistical models always predict more microplastics are in the lakes than are found by sampling. Finding them in algae helps close some of that gap. Quote, I think we found one of those reservoirs where some of the microplastics have been, for lack of a better word, hiding, end quote, said Peller whose recently published study in environmental pollution documented the close interactions between algae and microplastics. The study examined the most abundant group of algae in the Great Lakes, Cladophora. 
Cladophora, which looks a bit like green hair, readily tangles up with plastic microfibers, which are shed from synthetic clothing, carpets, and other cloth. Nearly every penny-sized sample of Cladophora collected from the lakes contained at least one microfiber, Peller said. Even samples from apparently pristine locations, like near Sleeping Bear Dunes National Lakeshore in the northwest corner of Michigan's Lower Peninsula, contained microplastics. Peller's team also took clean, living Cladophora samples and added plastic microfibers to them. Plastic microfibers quickly adhered to the algae. Even without special plastic screening technology, removing 90% of plastics is not only possible, but probable, said Hang Zhang, the assistant director of monitoring and research at Metropolitan Water Reclamation District of Greater Chicago. Studies of wastewater treatment plants around the world put the removal rate as high as 98%. A main goal of wastewater treatment is removing particles of organic waste by screening and settling out waste into a sludge. Because microplastics tend to attach to these particles, like they do to algae, a lot of it is captured by processes designed before microplastic pollution started gaining attention. Removal rates of 90% or higher still leave a lot of microplastics in the Great Lakes. Some researchers estimate 11,000 tons of plastic pollution enters the Great Lakes each year. The Guardian and Consumer Reports undertook a nine-month analysis of tap water around the U.S. and found disturbing levels of arsenic, lead, and so-called forever chemicals in the 120 samples, which came from water systems that provide water for over 19 million people. Testing revealed that over 35% of the samples had PFAS, the so-called forever chemicals, because they don't break down in the environment or the human body, at levels above Consumer Reports' recommended maximum. Some 8% of the samples contained arsenic at higher levels than the Consumer Reports' recommended maximum. 118 of the 120 samples had detectable levels of lead, of which scientists in the EPA concur that there's no safe level. People with chemical contaminants in their water have some alternatives for reducing their exposure on their own, such as employing some types of filter. However, consumer advocates say that the solution shouldn't fall on the shoulders of consumers. Legislation passed last year by the House of Representatives would have been helpful with regard to lead, but it didn't pass the Senate. It would have authorized almost $23 billion to replace lead service lines around the country. Japanese cherry blossom lovers have been seeing their favorite time of year come ever earlier in recent times, with 2021 proving to be a record year. The nation's favorite flower, called sakura, at one time very much an April phenomenon, has started to burst into bloom regularly in late March. Peak bloom in the ancient capital of Kyoto was reached on March 26 this year, the earliest since the Japan Meteorological Agency started collecting the data in 1953. The date is 10 days ahead of the 30-year average, with similar records set this year in more than a dozen cities across Japan. The flowers have been a strong influence on Japanese culture for centuries. They are regularly used in poetry and literature, and their fragility is viewed as a symbol of life, death, and rebirth. For Eco Report, I'm Sarah Callanan. And I'm Patrick Callanan. And now for our events calendar. 
Join Spring Mill State Park in partnership with Lawrence County Keep Invasives in check at 9 a.m. by the pool parking lot on Saturday, April 10th to learn how to identify invasive plants and then spend time pulling invasive garlic mustard. At 11 a.m., you will bring your bags filled with garlic mustard to be weighed and then receive a ticket for a free lunch. The person with the heaviest bag will receive a 2021 Indiana State Park Pass. Please register at sbelt at dnr.in.gov. The Indiana Audubon Society will host a virtual birdsong ID workshop on Sunday, April 11th at 3 to 4 p.m. The workshop will help you identify birds by sound and give you tips on how to distinguish different songs. Registration is required at indianaaudubon.org events. For questions regarding this event, email Sam Warren at swarren at indianaaudubon.org. There will be a Salt Creek Wildflowers hike at Monroe Lake on Wednesday, April 14th from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. One of the best locations to see spring wildflowers in bloom is at Monroe Lake. The spot is home to an unusual white-blooming form of Virginia bluebells, along with over 30 other species. Registration is required by April 11th. Go to Salt Creek Wildflowers APR 2021 to sign up. Masks must be worn at all times. Meet at the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers office on Monroe Dam Court. McCormick's Creek State Park is hosting a wildflower weekend on Friday, April 16th through Sunday, April 18th, with events scheduled for each day. The event kickoff takes place from 5.30 to 7 p.m. on Friday with a special tour of the My Path Trail. On Saturday at 8 a.m., there will be a morning hike to the Echo Canyon Natural Area. Then a native plant sale will take place from 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. at the Nature Center. A wolf cave hike will take place at 10 a.m. with many more demonstrations and activities throughout the day as well as on Sunday. Bloomington Parks and Recreation has launched a new outer spatial application on their webpage this past Monday, April 5th. You can now easily access information about parks and trails from your mobile device. The application is free and available for both iPhone and Android devices. Mapping and navigation capabilities are all available, including trailheads and where to park. You can also check out the attached flyer about outer spatial on the webpage at bloomington.in.gov parks parks mobile app. To learn more about this new application, contact Crystal Ritter at ritterc at bloomington.in.gov. And that wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water solar electricity and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's headlines were written by Norm Holy and Linda Green. David Lyman wrote the script, and Linda Green and Patrick Callanan edited it. Juliana Daly compiled the events. 
Patrick Hallinan produced and engineered today's show. For WFHB, I'm Patrick Callanan. And I'm Sarah Callanan. And this is Eco Report. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source. For South Central Indiana. Bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org. 